What's up, everybody? This is Alternate Take, and I am your host, Danny Rodriguez. Welcome back. On this episode, we brought you guys the doctor himself, Dr. Peter McCullough. I like to say it with an accent, Peter McCullough, but it's actually Peter McCullough. And he is, as of right now, the most listened to guest on the Joe Rogan Experience. Which is the most insane thing in the world because, I mean, they've had on Elon Musk, Dave Chappelle. They've had on the biggest people in the world. And he's only been on the, the podcast for like three weeks. But we got to have him on our podcast and we got to build off what was said on that episode and whatnot. And, um, man, we got some great information, didn't we, JB? Yeah, pretty crazy. Yeah, this is, uh, this is JB, by the way. And, yeah, I saw him on Rogan like two or three weeks ago. And I, I've seen Rogan. I've listened to Rogan in the past. But, like... For whatever reason, I think obviously a lot of the world felt the same. Over 40 million views in like two weeks. It, it just was like, oh my God, like this is insane. I have to share this with everybody. And I listened to it three times. It was each episode, or it was three hours long. So I listened to nine hours of him over and over. And I sent it to everyone. I'm like, dude, why is no one talking about this? Like everyone should know about this. And so it was just crazy two weeks later, like, He's in our screen in our in our room here talking to you. <laughs> That's <laughs> right. Two idiots about he's talking to two idiots about science and but honestly it was just it was an honor and uh, it's it's just super cool because now you know we feel like you know we don't want to come off as we're doctors or anything or we're authorities but we're getting it from the literally the best source in the world so it's like you know Dr. McCullough is the most published doctor in his field in the, the medical literature, in the history of ever. So like people are like, he's a conspiracy theorist or he's this or that, or like, dude, he's literally just trying to help people. Like he's doing it for free. You know how much people would charge this guy to like talk to them about medical information and medical advice? Like, oh my God. And he's doing it for free to try to help people and get better. So crazy. he's definitely not conspiracy theorist or any sort of uh, anti-vax or this or that, like he's he's vaxxed himself. He says it. He he's not anti-vax. He just doesn't believe in you know the mandate, and it should be for every single person, depending on you know genetic makeup and and overall health and prior conditions and, and things like that. And just you know, he just wants to be well aware that or make people well aware that there are plenty of other things on top of that that you can do to not only prevent getting COVID or better your chances of preventing COVID. But also having a you know a better time of surviving it once you have it. There's a, there's a lot of things you can do just from over the counter. So, and we have all those broken down for us now. So, that's right, dude. It was it was crazy, man. The all the details we went over, you guys are really gonna enjoy. So, without further ado, I bring to you Doctor Peter McCullough. Alternate Take listeners, thanks for joining in today. Today we have a very special guest, Dr. Peter McCullough. How you doing, sir? Uh, thanks for having me on the show, Danny. Of course, sir. Well, uh, it's been quite a whirlwind recently, right? I mean, um, I've uh, I've always been interested in medicine. Never been the brightest person. I'll, I'm going to say that up front. But um, as of recent, it's been very, very interesting to see your journey the last couple of weeks, uh, ever since the Joe Rogan episode. Uh, I have a lot of friends who are into that podcast who brought up your name consistently over the last two weeks. I wanted to start off the uh, podcast with uh, kind of the same way Joe started off where you state your credentials so people can get an understanding of uh, what you do and uh, what your studies have been like. 
Sure. Well, thanks for having me on the show. What I told uh, Joe Rogan in an extended interview was largely an expanded um, exchange of information that I told Tucker Carlson back in May. So I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. I'm an academic internist and cardiologist in Dallas, Texas. I practice both uh, disciplines and I'm a trained epidemiologist. I trained there in epidemiology at the University of Michigan. And I spend about half of my time taking care of patients and about half of my time as an author and editor and now really a news commentator uh, for the last two years in COVID-19. I brought to the world the two uh, most cited papers for the early treatment of COVID-19, which was critical uh, to prevent hospitalization and death because COVID-19 is a long illness. The only way to stop a hospitalization is to do something before the hospitalization occurred. So those critical protocols were needed, uh, became the uh, basis for the uh, Association of American Physician and Surgeon Home Treatment Guide, most widely utilized guide uh, in the world to treat COVID-19. Uh, other groups came on board. The Frontline Critical Care Consortium's done a wonderful job. They have a set of similar protocols. And I think it should be reassuring to Americans that doctors working independently came up with the same conclusions about how to treat COVID-19. And we use uh, drugs, both uh, FDA, emergency use authorized, approved, and appropriately prescribed off-label drugs to treat COVID-19. Uh, but my contributions have been uh, well-received. I have testified in the U.S. Senate uh, multiple state senates. I'm a frequent news commentator on Fox News, Newsmax, Real America, so many different uh, channels. The Joe Rogan interview, as you pointed out, is most uh, frequently downloaded and listened to Joe Rogan interview on Spotify in the history of the Joe Rogan experience. So Americans and people worldwide have been hungry for clear, evidence-based, scientific data on COVID-19. And the reason why they're so hungry is they have not gotten a clean download of information through the major media. The major media has been influenced by a critical censorship service called the Trusted News Initiative, which uh, starting December 10th, overtly censored uh, the news to Americans and people worldwide. And people knew it and they're tired of uh, not receiving valid information on COVID-19. So I filled an important void. Yes, sir. <clears throat> now, Obviously, I recommend everyone to go back to that Joe Rogan episode, too, if they really wanted to get a full in-depth date, like I said, all your interviews with uh, Tucker Carlson and all that, because you can really dive deep. That's I think it's better if they start there and then work their way going forward with your work. Um, you mentioned the uh, articles in the I believe that was the American uh, Journal of Medicine, correct, that you published early in 2000, um, 2020, correct, sir? Right. So the American Journal of Medicine was the breakthrough paper in August of, of 2020. Now, we had our ideas forming in April and May and submitted the paper uh, late June. It does, there is a publication delay. So, uh, you know, doctors in my circles uh, had figured out relatively quickly after COVID-19 hit how to treat it uh, because we learned there's three major phases, viral replication, cytokine storm or inflammation and thrombosis. And so no single drug can treat COVID-19. We have to use drugs that address all three phases of the illness. Now these were in the severe cases which were uh, the uh, original Wuhan wild type, alpha, beta, gamma, and I think most recently Delta, which was hard to treat. But you know, Delta is fading quickly as Omicron comes in and Omicron is completely different. Uh, it's a very mild brief syndrome. Uh, it, it seems to affect everybody. It's broken through natural immunity. It's broken through vaccine immunity, hitting the susceptible, but it's so mild 
uh, in the vast majority of cases, 99% of cases, no treatment is needed. So Omicron has really changed everything. Yeah, I, I find I find that interesting that there, I haven't seen at least from the from a perspective looking at the media that they haven't changed the way they treat COVID with Omicron. It's still the same. Um, I guess I would say people are still afraid and they're still treating it the same way. They're still making it everyone fear Omicron the way they're going to fear the original infection of a uh, COVID nineteen or Delta. And how would you go about analyzing that? The only doctors who can really opine on that are doctors who are treating COVID patients. So I am. And I'm receiving floods of calls. Uh, they announced in Dallas today that our testing centers hit 16% positivity rate, meaning 16% of people who come forward for testing are testing positive. So there is a ton of Omicron. Uh, you know, it's shutting down college football games. It's shutting down the um, uh, NFL, NHL. They're changing their testing uh, protocols. And the bottom line is everybody is getting it. It's so clear. And uh, it's very mild. Uh, many family members have had it. It's about a day and a, and a day and a half of just a kind of a viral malaise or just feeling a little under the weather. And then it resolves, doesn't have any pulmonary involvement. It's so quick. We, we don't even have a chance to treat it. Um, now, it, the important thing is the virus is in the nose, Danny. This is really important. So the source of the problem is in the nose. And so now we blast it with uh, nasal rinses and washes with um, betadine. So we use 10% povidone iodine. We dilute it to half a teaspoon, one and a half cc's of water, a shot glass of water, squirt it up the nose, sniff it back and spit it out. It basically kills the virus up there and really shortens the course of illness. It is far and away the most important thing to do. Thank goodness a five bottled, a $5 bottle of, of betadine on Amazon and people can control their own fate on this. They don't need to suffer with the virus very much at all. I'm glad you mentioned that, sir, because that's precisely what I wanted to focus the podcast on. It was how can people be able to take COVID-19 into their own hands and be able to treat themselves as best as possible while at home before it gets serious? I remember you mentioned that on the podcast and um, we already bought it. We already bought the, the substance and we've been using it and buying the nasal sprays and um now that that's one of your things that you recommend, is there other things you recommend that people can do? Good? I mean, obviously, there's things like staying in shape and being as healthy as possible. But are there other remedies that you recommend that the everyday person can do to increase their chances that don't get highly sick from this thing? That's a great point. So what would be in the over-the-counter survival kit? Even if it looks like Omicron's going to hit everybody, honestly. Um, so the 10% uh, betadine solution, the povidone iodine, $5 on Amazon. That's how I bought mine. Uh, remember, one, uh, half a teaspoon, one5 uh, uh, cc's, uh, 1.5 ounces of water. So basically half a teaspoon shot glass of water is all you need. And either a little spray bottle, $2 on Amazon or a bulb syringe, less than a dollar squirt it up the nose and you got to sniff it back. You got to choke on it a little bit, do it over the sink and then spit it out. That's how you know you get it up there and kill the virus. By the way, you'll never have as clean as sinuses after you do that. I didn't realize I did it myself. Um, as I was hit with it. And it was amazing how it cleared out my sinuses. I, I'm going to do that, Danny, for every cold in the future. I'm not going to suffer with a cold and congestion up my nose anymore. I've talked to enough ear, nose and throat doctors and dentists to say they've been doing this forever. This is not new. They, it kills all forms of viruses and bacteria. And it's a good thing to do when you have nasal congestion. So after that, we recommend zinc, uh, 50 milligrams of elemental zinc a day, uh, vitamin D3, it's interesting, 5,000 units international day for baseline uh, health. And then we boost it to 20,000 international units a day during the acute treatment for a few days. Vitamin C, 3,000 milligrams during acute treatment uh, a day. And then quercetin or quercetin, 
500 milligrams twice a day during acute treatment. I would add something else uh, because there is some overlap with uh, Delta, but it's fading quickly. And I would add over-the-counter Pepsid or famotidine, famotidine, 80 milligrams a day. It is an antihistamine, also reduces uh, viral replication. And uh, the bottom line is everybody good with that. Uh, people who are older, who have uh, heart blockages, prior stroke, uh, they should actually go ahead and take a full aspirin, 325 milligrams a day. Uh, and, uh, and we'll decide on the duration. I think it's going to be about 30 days after Omicron. We used to do 90 days after the uh, legacy variants. Wow. <clears throat> yeah. And I, th I think that's all great information that people need to hear because that is, I think, the biggest thing that everyone's been struggling with. I know you mentioned earlier that there wasn't any treatment that medical professionals were offering up in the beginning, it was essentially, um, and I'm paraphrasing too, and I might incorrectly state your position, but essentially there was a huge fear among doctors that they were afraid to get this virus themselves. So the, the primary focus wasn't on treating these patients. It was on just how can I get over the situation kind of quickly? Yeah, I think doctors and health systems were playing defense. They never got out in front of this. They never had outpatient treatment centers. Patients went into urgent care centers, were given a test positive result and sent home. It was very inadequate. It led to uh, really millions upon millions of avoidable hospitalizations. Uh, I just did a TV interview uh, with uh, doctors in Lahore, Pakistan. And I tell you, they always treated as an outpatient. They didn't flood their hospitals. So, you know, pl places all over the world did it differently. In the United States, uh, none of our, uh, you know, blue ribbon medical schools had any innovation in the outpatient world. We didn't hear anything from Harvard or Mayo Clinic or Duke or Emory or Michigan. Yeah, I honestly, I, you know, I, I, these, uh, these centers are in my academic circles. They literally fell flat when it came to COVID-19. They would treat patients that they got hospitalized, but there hasn't been any innovation on the hospital protocols. We still don't see the Mayo Clinic protocol or, or again, Duke or Harvard. You know, where's their innovation? They have their own innovative protocols for cancer, for heart disease. Suddenly for COVID, they basically have nothing outside of uh, minimal care to offer. I think it's been very disappointing. Americans have been frustrated, very angry actually at the medical community for their inept response to COVID-19. Yeah, I think that's the most frustrating part for me is I think medical professionals traditionally in nature are skeptics. They, they challenge the status quo. They ask questions. They do a lot of research so they can get as much data as possible and they can make a pretty well-balanced conclusion. And it's been quite the opposite ever since started. I've, I know a lot of healthcare workers and obviously they do a very honorable and noble thing. And it's, it, but that kind of goes away once you involve hubris. And that's what's been happening is I'll have a lot of nurses that I know that'll say, well, I know because I'm a nurse and I'll say, okay, well then explain to me how, you know, and they have nothing to explain. They're just using their position to state how they, how, and it's, it's very strange to me because it's not, this is very new. It's, it's not, common amongst that. How has that been frustrating for you to see that to where the dynamic of what a medical professional is changing? You know, there's been a, a complete lack of, of uh, roundtable discussions, discernment, uh, exchange of information. We see no international collaboration. We turn on TV and we just see, you know, one or two NIH or CDC officials, uh, no international panels or collaboration. People in America would have no idea just south of them in Central America, they've been he handing out treatment kits uh, literally since the start of the pandemic, easing people through the pandemic. Mexico City, uh, larger than almost any U.S. city, they stomped out their entire uh, epidemic problem with the use of actually ivermectin, multi-drug uh, treatment. 
Uh, so now we have the Pfizer uh, product, which is a novel chymase-like three inhibitor and a old proteus inhibitor, ritonavir, used in HIV combined. Uh, and then we have the Merck drug molnupiravir, which is an oral polymerase inhibitor. Uh, but they're pretty late to the game. It's almost by the time they get these distributed to pharmacies, people are going to have Omicron. And Omicron is over with so fast, uh, we, you know, we can't even call in any medicines. They're pretty much over it uh, in a day or so. So it looks like these medicines are going to be too little, too late. For two years, our workhorses were hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin. Uh, and then we used other drugs in combination. The Japanese and Russians have always had favipiravir as an example. We use the monoclonal antibodies to the extent we could in our seniors. Uh, we use Regeneron, which again was our workhorse, uh, carisivimab and indimivab. The Lilly product never really got going. It was bamalivimab and urtisivimab back on the market. Now, both of those products look like from modeling studies that they'll be useless against Omicron. So we're left with the GlaxoSmithKline product, which is sotirivimab, terrific product, 500 milligrams IV infusion. We can use it down to age 12, but uh, I think it'll be a rare, maybe a senior who would get this monoclonal antibody infusion. But right now I've, I've almost dropped all uh, use of monoclonal antibodies as Omicron has moved in basically quickly in the last two to four weeks. Now I'll go on national TV tonight and tell Americans that I think Omicron has really changed the game. Interesting. <clears throat> yeah, I know they had mentioned the, the restrictions on monoclonal antibodies and how tough it was to really get that. Um, and I, I like that you mentioned the hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin as well, because I, I know you had mentioned that they were already FDA approved and were working best early rather than later. And there was still a period where they did not review the data and they were basically telling you medical professionals as public service, public service agencies that we're not going to keep following the data. What was that uh, like situation like for you? The public service agencies are exactly that. They're public service. So they work for you and me. And that would be the CDC, the NIH, and the FDA. Um, I think we should have had a task. Neither one of those agencies, by the way, are suited for a mass casualty treatment situation. And they're not suited, by the way, to execute a vaccine program. Uh, so I think we should have had a separate task force or entity set up uh, for COVID-19 treatment and, um, and to manage the crisis. And we should have monthly reports. Monthly reports. That means a monthly review of all the data all the data coming in on ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, favipiravir. We had a ton of data coming in on corticosteroids, other anti-inflammatories, anticoagulants. We needed updates and reviews on monoclonal antibodies. Americans deserve to hear how COVID-19 was treated, both in the early pre-hospital phase and hospital phase on a monthly basis. And the fact we turn on the news over and over again, month by month by month, there's no mention of treatment. The only thing Americans have gotten is a steady diet of messaging on the vaccines. Right. And I, and I think that's gone over. It's been gone over extensively on your own publication and stuff like that. What what would be books and journals and any sort of great information that outside of yourself that you would recommend to someone that they can go read right now to make themselves feel way more comfortable with this COVID-19 infection and how, how they can go about it? Well, there's some great websites right now, as well as organizations that have formed. The top one for doctors is the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons. So go to aapsonline.org. It has all the training videos on how to treat patients. It has uh, all the slides, very important resources for slides on all the uh, data 
Uh, AAPS makes the home treatment guide. It also has, Danny, a list, a roster of doctors in the United States who treat COVID-19 early at home and how to access them. It has the links to all the telemedicine services so Americans won't be denied a treatment. So AAPSonline.org, very important. Next one is truthforhealth.org. That one is uh, an advocacy organization uh, that uh, basically gives a lot of information on vaccine safety. It also gives both the inpatient and outpatient treatment protocols and what to do when you have a loved one in the hospital and there's questions about their care in the hospital. The next one after that is Frontline Critical Care Consortium, flcc.net. They have uh, their own sets of protocols. They have telemedicine treatment services, have done a wonderful job. I want to give credit to Dr. Pierre Corey and Paul Merrick, who lead that organization, excellent critical care doctors. And uh, the last one I would mention is American Frontline Doctors, AFLDS.org, uh, led by Dr. Simone Gold, Dr. Ryan Cole, Richard Ammerling, terrific doctors. Uh, they provide a lot of advocacy. They're doing a lot of legal, legal work on medical freedom. They also have a, a telemedicine service uh, and all the other resources. So America is rich with resources like this. Thank goodness uh, we have this, you know, in the United Kingdom, Canada, Australia, they are absolutely starved of any hope of early treatment. Where in America, we've had heroic doctors break through. Yes, sir. Such as yourself. I mean, it's it's been very clear. They, thank God we have people like you because it's it's been very very helpful, especially to the normal person like myself. Well, we we aren't, you know, subject to the resources like you guys are. Where you're involved in the medicine, you guys are bringing out these studies. Um, I really I really liked what you had to say on uh, Rogan when you mentioned that it crosses bioethics when you pressure someone into taking a vaccine. Um, you don't really hear doctors say that quite often. In fact, you hear the opposite. Um, tell me about that experience and how, how did those code of ethics even um, get into your brain? Is that something that's taught in medical school? Is that, how, is that, how does that come along in your professional process? Yeah, there's several codes of ethics. I'm glad you brought this up. That was, that was a very carefully worded question and I appreciate it. The first uh, oath that a doctor takes is called the Hippocratic Oath. And the Hippocratic Oath says a doctor will always do his or her best to, to uh, make the help the patient make the best decisions. And, and the doctor under no circumstances would ever do something that would uh, harm a patient. Uh, it's called, the Latin term is called primum non nocere. So that's very I- important. So uh, as the data weighed against the vaccines and the vaccines causing great harm to large numbers of individuals, uh, you know, basically uh, the vaccines and the do- any type of doctor advocacy for them violated the, the Hippocratic Oath. The other thing is when patients call and they're sick with COVID-19 and the doctors tell them uh, that they're not going to treat them uh, or that there is no treatment, both of those are not true uh, or not correct. Uh, then in fact, the doctors have violated their Hippocratic Oath. And so we've had large numbers actually break their oath to their patients. And, and I think that uh, is driving an incredible distrust and anger among patients. The other things that you've mentioned are uh, basically related to research and clinical care, and they're under what's called OHRP in the United States, the Office of Human Research Protections. And they have six cornerstones of bioethics. The first one is the Nuremberg Code. The Nuremberg Code uh, basically came and is written up out of the Nuremberg trials in Nazi Germany, where they put doctors on trial for the atrocities that the doctors did to uh, patients during uh, Nazi Germany. And the Nuremberg Code says that under no circumstances can anyone receive any pressure, coercion, or threat of reprisal to take any medicine or injection or vaccine into their body. 
It simply cannot. There has to be a free choice. And the second part of that, the second tenet to the um, Code of Bioethics is called the Declaration of Helsinki, which says that every person must receive fair and full balanced informed consent over anything they take in their body. So here we are with the vaccine program. They're all investigational. None of them are approved. But even if they were, when someone goes to take the vaccine, they are not being given the safety report. Our CDC on their VAERS safety report has told us now over 20,000 Americans uh, and people outside the United States that get reported into our system have died shortly after the vaccines. Over 30,000 are permanently disabled. Over a quarter million have been sent to the hospital with serious uh, injuries. Uh, that report is not being told to people as they come forward uh, and take the, the vaccine. So you can see we've, we've viol- that there's been large numbers of doctors who are violating the Hippocratic Oath, uh, large numbers of employers, government agencies, uh, schools, uh, physicians, physician medical organizations, they're all violating the Nuremberg Code and the Declaration of Helsinki by basically pressuring patients into taking the vaccine. So we've had a, a colossal breach of bioethics. Yes, sir. And it's it's honestly extremely refreshing to hear someone as respected as yourself, like a, a phenomenal medical professional to reiterate th- that whole premise. It really is because you don't you don't hear it often. And it's uh, I, I appreciate you saying that, sir. I really do. Well, Tucker Tucker Carlson made a big deal about that when I uh, spent time with him. He's a great guy, by the way. I went to his studios uh, to do the shoot for Tucker Carlson today. Uh, Tucker Carlson basically got worked up at about this time in the interview and said, listen, you better listen to Dr. McCullough. He has authority. And, you know, he's right. I have over 650 peer-reviewed publications in the medical literature. I'm one of the most published people in all of academic medicine. And I'm a practicing doctor, and I'm extremely confident in my clinical skills. I am here to tell you that I am a doctor of authority. In fact, one of greater authority than any other physician you'd see in the medical media at this point in time. And you know, no one has had the courage to directly engage in a conversation with me about uh, early treatment of COVID-19 and vaccine and safety enough. And this is where we lost Dr. McCullough for a brief second. You can blame that on our producer who watches way too many pornos on this computer. Back to the show. All right. We're back, sir. Yeah, I, I think there was a I don't know what happened. I think we froze there. Um, well, we we left off, sir, and over your publications and and uh, your credentials regarding that, sir. OK, well, what I was uh, saying is that Tucker Carlson made uh, a point about medical authority and that I have medical authority and a person who's in that position. And I do. I have over 650 peer-reviewed publications in the National Library of Medicine. That's tops among any uh, uh, top physician in the United States, far more than the average doctor at a medical school and far more than any uh, media doctor that you'll see on TV. Uh, I'm a president of a major medical society, the Cardio-Renal Society of America. I'm the editor-in-chief of Reviews in Cardiovascular Medicine, the editor of the inaugural textbook, Cardio-Renal Medicine. And uh, I'm the senior associate editor of the American Journal of Cardiology. I've chaired over two dozen data safety monitoring boards for clinical trials for the National Institutes of Health, Big Pharma, and in vitro diagnostics. Um, I can tell you, I know drug safety and efficacy, uh, and I know uh, how to adapt my skills to a new problem like COVID-19. I have over 
of 50 publications in COVID-19 itself, including the key papers on how to treat COVID-19. So my opinion has been greatly relied upon by U.S. Senate, multiple House Senates, uh, and my testimony uh, across the, the world. And, um, and at this point in time, I do have medical authority to tell Americans that uh, they are clearly uh, in need of receiving fair, balanced information on early treatment and vaccine safety efficacy. In fact, Danny, uh, myself and doctors in my circles, we are giving live programs across the United States where 500 to 5,000 people are attending. They're taking half a day off and they basically are getting this seminar on the data on COVID-19 and it's all cited peer-reviewed literature and they are sitting taking notes. I can tell you, they know they are not getting a straight story from our public health agencies and the major media. Wow. Yeah, I think I think that's what's most uh, phenomenal about you, sir, is that doctors, I would say, as a whole, are 1% of the country, or even smaller than that, where that is how smart they these people have become, is where they've maximized their potential to become doctors. And you are a 1% of even doctors because you're doing all that extra work. You, you are doing all these publications and journals, and even the s- smartest doctors in the world are relying on you to get their information on COVID-19. So that says that says a lot about you, sir. It really does. Thank you. You know, uh, people have said, well, wait a minute. Uh, don't the doctors uh, who are supporting the vaccines, uh, don't they have strong views on that? Uh, you know, Steve Kirsch, <laughs> who's who started the COVID-19 early treatment fund and now the COVID-19 vaccine injury fund, he's making a public offer of $2 million cash. If any doctor will sit down at a round table and advocate for the vaccines and he's contacted the medical schools, the public health agencies, the media doctor, do you know, not a single doctor will sit down in order to claim $2 million and make the case for vaccines. So I can tell you those who are, are telling their patients to take the COVID-19 vaccines, they really don't mean it and they know they're wrong. Correct. And what would you, uh, that's, that's so crazy, honestly, that's unbelievable that that's even like an offer on the table. And again, put your money where your mouth is essentially right. If that's the old saying as it goes. That's true. I mean, there's nothing that speaks uh, better for it. Uh, I've never had a doctor uh, directly engage me in a conversation and try to um, uh, make the case that we shouldn't treat COVID-19 early or try to make make the case that the vaccines are safe and effective. It's just the vaccines have never uh, covered COVID-19 well enough. We've, by the way, we've had more deaths now after release of the vaccines than before the vaccines. And we've had obvious breakthroughs. The vaccines have not solved the worldwide problem at all. And now the Omicron variant has turned everything upside down. It looks like it's going to sweep through everything vaccinated or not, but it's such a mild syndrome uh, by the time uh, we even recognize it, it's over with. Yes, sir. What, what would be uh, advice that you would give to somebody who is um, has gone through the vaccine process and has had you know some sort of repercussions where they maybe they've had some sort of blood clot issues or any issue essentially? What would you recommend the steps that they take? Are there would it still be the same remedies as early treatment or with other things that you would recommend they do going forward? For the vaccine injured, the first thing they should do is uh, go ahead and press their doctors to report it to the U.S. CDC vaccine adverse event reporting system. And if the doctors refuse to report it, they should go ahead and file a complaint against that doctor through their um, basically state medical board. The doctors uh, absolutely positively must recognize 
these vaccine injuries. There are official warnings for Pfizer, Moderna causing heart injury or myocarditis. It's happened already in the database over 16,000 times. There's official warnings and uh, as well as peer reviewed papers on blood clots with all forms of the vaccine, serious blood clots and a whole variety of different uh, blood vessels. Everyone should recognize that blood clots uh, don't come out of nowhere. They're basically a product of taking a vaccine in a patient who's predisposed. Uh, and then there uh, clearly are deaths, uh, patients who die shortly after the vaccine. It should be uh, in the family members' minds that in fact, the, the one thing that was introduced to their life was the vaccine. We know from two papers, one by Rose and one by McLaughlin, that 50% of the vaccine deaths occur within 48 hours of the shot. It's clear they took the shot and they died. And then about 80% will occur within a week. So I think everybody, all their family members who someone has taken a vaccine and they've died, they absolutely positively should get the vaccine card and uh, press the doctors to report it to the vaccine adverse event reporting system or go ahead and report it themselves. They can go online and report it. That would be step one, is make sure the injuries are recognized. Our estimates now is that um, things are greatly underestimated, greatly underestimated. So I told you we have over 20,000 deaths reported in the CDC VAERS system as of uh, today. And uh, about half of those are domestic inside the United States, half occur outside the United States uh, through other countries use, that use our system. The same thing by the, thing, by the way has been seen in the British uh, yellow card system and in the European UDRA system. So the same phenomenon, large numbers of deaths. We should never accept for any vaccine product, probably more than 50 deaths a year, even widely used ones. It's just so 20,000 way over the line, whether the vaccine is directly causing it or not. But there has been an assessment of causality uh, by uh, McLaughlin and colleagues that has determined about 86% of the deaths uh, have no other explanation. They're probably due to the vaccine. And we know by a paper a few years ago from Meissner and colleagues that 86% of the time, the reports are made by uh, doctors and nurses, uh, the, the, drug, the pharmaceutical companies, and only about 14% by the patients or the patient families themselves. So there's an opportunity for the patient and families to really start to report this so we can get a fair view on this. The CDC must review these and they must vet them. Every, all the numbers I'm giving you are in the VAERS system. So when someone's taking the vaccine and they're injured, they absolutely positively need to report it. And the next steps are to make a diagnosis. So uh, the, the uh, for instance, the chest pain, needs uh, an EKG, a blood test, cardiac troponin, as well as an echocardiogram. And, and patients need to press for that because they could be having heart injury due to the vaccines, myocarditis. Uh, we're seeing scores of athletes uh, die on the field. I don't know if you've seen this, Danny, but it's extraordinary, the soccer players. And we're worried that in fact, they've had subclinical myocarditis and now with the stress of uh, playing soccer or rugby that they're dying on the field. And we know the vaccines don't work as, uh, as COVID-19 is sweeping through the NFL, the NHL, and the major uh, college teams as well. So it's the idea of, of uh, boy, it's taking a huge risk for, for little or no benefit. And then uh, we know that um, individuals who present with other symptoms, neurologic symptoms, uh, headache, uh, paralysis, they clearly need CT scans uh, to make a diagnosis. The blood clot Patients should get a D-dimer test, a blood test, as well as ultrasound imaging to identify the blood clot. The D-dimer may be one of the telltale signals that, in fact, the vaccine is costed. And then the original problem needs to be treated. The myocarditis, uh, if there is a reduced heart pumping function, they need beta blockers and ACE inhibitors. 
uh, which are classes of drugs, and then corticosteroids and colchicine to treat the myocarditis. We know that the blood clotting disorders need prolonged anticoagulation with uh, initially heparin or low microwave heparin, or, and then later on by Coumadin or uh, oral anticoagulants. Uh, some of the other syndromes uh, will have to be treated individually, but these vaccine injury syndromes, Danny, are no joke. I'm seeing them in my practice and they're coming in in large numbers. You know, it's very interesting to hear uh, someone in your position state these things because, again, it goes back to like the mass, hu mass hubris of the medical professionals that's going on right now. I, I only hear the opposite. I only hear that vaccines are safe. I only hear that those are those are a minority of situations that happen. Those aren't those aren't common. And reality is they are common now. These things are common. These things are happening. It is not normal when a soccer player collapses when he's been playing soccer his whole life and he's in great shape and in his 30s. This is not normal whatsoever. And then when there's the commonality that they're all taking certain vaccines and these things are happening to them, it's you know it it is it does raise an eyebrow. It is very strange. It's not normal whatsoever, and it, sh it should not be overlooked. And I think the easiest way to look at it is 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 there's a huge, I'm not, a. I try not to look at things necessarily with uh, emotion. I try to, I try to do my best to avoid that, but sometimes in a minority situations, it is good to do that. And, and the example I would use is when you think about it, if, well, if that was my son, it's not always the best thing to use, but sometimes it is. And I always think like, well, it's easy to dismiss this soccer player case, but what if it was your son? Well, then you would probably dig a little deeper and you would do a little bit more research because you care so much about that person that you'd want to understand why did my son, who's a fully fit soccer player collapse? And you might actually take this a little bit more seriously. You know, what's interesting, Danny, though, is why don't we see that in the U.S. athletes? We haven't seen, we saw Demarius Thomas uh, recently uh, die suddenly, but there hasn't been any other notable uh, sudden deaths. And uh, it's interesting, it's really unclear if the U.S. athletes uh, actually took the vaccines uh, because uh, we went along and remember Aaron Rodgers got COVID-19 and everyone says, well, we, we thought the NFL took the vaccine. So there must be forms of uh, non-disclosure that they have to allow them to get out of taking the vaccines, but no one really knows about it. So I think it's unclear, actually, who took the vaccines and, and who didn't. But the, the rash of sudden deaths are clearly worrisome. We need to know in each and every case, did they take the vaccine and when? And was there any antecedent chest pain? Uh, you saw the montage, I think, on the Internet. A lot of the athletes are holding their they actually seem to have some chest pain before they, they die. And uh, that to me, that is a cardiologist. That suggests myocarditis. And it's a sudden death. And we know with myocarditis uh, that there can be no physical activity for three or six months. And if we do like play a soccer game and say myocarditis, it can trigger a cardiac death. And a recent paper by Choi and colleagues from Korea clearly showed that in a young man who had chest pain for like five days. And then he came in the hospital and he's dead seven hours later. They did an autopsy. The heart is loaded with inflammation is swollen uh, it's clear that the vaccine causes myocarditis and that and that's what's so frustrating too is that if, if that happens to you like that there's nothing you can do to essentially like immediately address it except for rest and uh, it's it's frustrating because all the other remedies you know you can do benadine in the nose you can do a bunch of things and, and it and it does help you and then for this you just basically have to lay low and just let the chips fall where they may it's a very frustrating situation well, we do have some treatments for myocarditis. I faced this in my practice, and I mentioned to settle down the inflammation with steroids and colchicine. And then if the heart pumping function is weakened, to use what's called an ACE inhibitor and a beta blocker. And I have done that in my practice and gotten patients through it, but I, I still have three to six months of, of no heavy uh, exertion. My fear is that the athletes may actually have a little discomfort, but they don't report it 
because they know there's that could end their season or they could drop their contracts or influence them financially. So they're trying to play through it. And then you're seeing this uh, this catastrophe on the playing field. We've never seen rates of death like this. But again, we need the data. We can't assume it's the vaccines. We need some careful investigation. Hopefully an investigative reporter or an investigative physician is going to get the data and see if indeed these people have taken the vaccines because uh, they it is unusual. By the way, you know the most common cause that someone would collapse on the field is called hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. In today's world, they're all screened for this using EKG and echocardiography. So players don't go on the field at risk of collapsing and dying like this. Uh, in fact, it's very rare. If you're know, watching an entire uh, you know, season of the NFL, the NHL, um, and all the other leagues, it's very rare now because we have the quality screening in place. Oh, yeah. I remember seeing that in um, the movie John Q. I remember that. I was like, oh, man, I got to get my heart checked. I remember saw when I was a kid. <laughs> Great movie. Um, I wanted to also go over something that that was like the most talked about thing after your episode with Joe Rogan, at least from like the most things that I've heard from like friends and whatnot and peers, uh, such big fans of yours. And they were mentioning like uh, they would go over the how someone cannot get COVID-19 twice claim. Um, and it was very fascinating because it was all new to us, essentially. Like I said, like I said before, um, we've only heard the opposite. Um, can you like elaborate on that a little bit and, and give us a little bit more details on how that process came about for you guys? Well, about well like any good scientist, I've been following the data and it is true with the legacy variants the wild type alpha, beta, gamma, and delta, you can't get it twice, but now that's changed. Omicron, it's clear. Omicron is the second COVID infection for almost everybody. And it's clear now that uh, it's not, it's no longer one and done, that uh, Omicron can infect uh, everybody, including the uh, previously immune. A paper by Pulliam and colleagues from South Africa now has clearly shown this. So that goes to show you how, um, how contemporary things must be. So when I met with Joe Rogan, we hadn't had the data yet break on Omicron uh, that coming, breaking through natural immunity. In fact, it wasn't even stated in the first CDC report, December 10th. I interviewed with Joe Rogan, I think on December 8th. So now it's clear December 27th for today's interview, uh, natural immunity does not hold against uh, Omicron. I'll make that very clear today on national TV when I go on. Yes, sir. You hear that, Joe Rogan? We got we got some information on you, partner. There it is right there. Beautiful. Well, sir, uh, I really don't want to take up too much of your time. Um, I think it was I think it's very important what you're doing. And it's one of the most respected things I've ever you know, seen in my life. It really is. Uh, it's it's a very strange time we're living in. No one knows how to handle it. You can't say what you want to say. Um, but if you have the data to back it up and, and you have the heart to do it, some, someone like yourself, it's it's deeply appreciated, sir. I, I thought it was very important to bring you on so you can spread the word as much as possible to uh, you know as many listeners as we can reach. And I couldn't appreciate more what you're doing. I, congratulations on your recent awards. Saw those at those conventions. It's very respectful. Um, but thank you, sir. I really appreciate all you're doing. Danny, thanks for having me. And you know, I'm convinced that you and I are doing the right thing. So keep up the great work. Thank you, sir. Likewise. We'll catch you soon. And there it is, ladies and gentlemen, our interview with the great Dr. Peter McCullough. Thank you for coming on the show, doctor. I really appreciate it. That was literally insane. I, I can't wait to share this with uh, as much people as possible. And I can't wait for you guys to do the same. You know, this is all very helpful information for all of you um, for pre-COVID, for when you have it, for post-COVID, for vaccine issues, for wh whatever. It's, it's, you know, it's top-notch information from the best doctor in the world, essentially. Um, so I, I couldn't appreciate it more. Thanks again, Doc.
Yeah, any closing words, JB? Yeah, no, I mean, I don't, uh, I don't think you do either. Really fancy ourselves the the smartest people, but uh, I'm a fucking genius. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, sure. Um, but you don't have to be a smart person in this world. You can listen to smart people and take advice from smart people, and you know, find mentorship. And that's kind of what what I've always done my whole life. So, just listening to this guy, and he he's very he carefully words his his words and sources everything, cites everything, comes up with uh, you know studies from around the whole world and different scientists and doctors all coming to the same conclusion. Like, I don't know, like I said, I'm not a smart person, but to me that sounds like science. Like that, that sounds legit to me. So I- I'm good with what he's got to say. <laughs> 100%. Thanks again, Doctor. I really appreciate it. This was uh, an amazing episode, and uh, we'll see you guys soon. This is Alternate Take. Bye-bye. <laughs>